Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, and today we've got something a little special for you. So over the past month, our editors have been hard at work pulling together a comprehensive overview of the year in art. From Ai Weiwei's ongoing efforts to use art to address the global refugee crisis to Christo's floating peers redefining the audience for public works, we've identified the biggest moments in art this year. We assembled a few of the many people who contributed to this project. Editorial Director Marina Cashton. Hi, Isaac. Deputy Editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac and staff writer Alexa Godhart to discuss a few of the most impactful moments of 2016. We're going to start in January, when Chinese dissident artist and activist Ai Weiwei recreated a photo of drowned Syrian refugee Alan Kurdi. Ai laid down on a beach in Lesbos, Greece, replacing the toddler's body with his own. The provocative work for India Today magazine drew detractors and champions, and for a brief moment, the struggle faced by migrants was back in the headlines. So the thesis kind of undergirding this work and I's practice over the last year dealing with refugees has kind of been, if we look, we will act. And I'm wondering if you think that's true. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a really good question, Isaac. And I think something that, you know, we've all been asking ourselves. Um, of course, that image uh, of all the images, you know, we've been faced with this year, at least for me personally, that image for anyone, for any parent, is was a heartbreaking uh, and really unnerving image to see. And Curdy, I think, the original photograph, you mean? Yes, the original photograph uh, that Ai Weiwei was using as reference. Um, and you know, your your initial reaction is to turn away because it is a difficult image to to digest, really. But but what I Ai Weiwei did successfully there is, is to to have us face that challenge and and say, okay, now what do we do about it? Um, you know, I, I I understand the argument from people who believe that he was maybe benefiting from such an image and using it to his own advantage. But um, you know, an Ai Weiwei is a room splitter. I, I think you know we, we all know that. But I, I I personally felt that it it did bring attention to this issue. It um, allowed us to digest it to look actually look at that image is a much easier image to look at and say what what do we do from here what what the power of images to to instill action you know i i would say that it, it also has us face other images that we're seeing especially recently in aleppo um and you know not just related to the the syrian refugee crisis but all, you know various refugee crises we're facing around the world and 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 think about how how we can as individuals affect some change, whether that's contributing to um, an organization who you know like Doctors Without Borders or other organizations are working. But inevitably, I think that image or Ai Weiwei's sort of focus on this on this issue um, has us sitting around this table having this conversation, you know, as part of an art world discourse, but obviously part of a greater world discourse. I totally agree and also think it's interesting that that was just one facet of I's engagement with the Syrian refugee crisis. He has really made it the primary subject of his art in the past year, even beyond, and has brought this subject to numerous artworks, not only that image, but also exhibitions in Vienna, three different exhibitions in New York, really trying to communicate that message of like, let's not look away, let's really address this. Um, yes, maybe at times to a niche audience, but still getting eyeballs nonetheless. 
he's really communicated this message across the world, which I think is interesting. And he does have a powerful voice, a room-splitting voice, but a powerful one nonetheless. I think what we touched on, actually, what I believe was the first artsy podcast, which would be interesting to go back and listen to now. Um, but you know, part of the controversy around the the kind of opportunistic nature of this or what people thought was opportunistic um, ignored the fact that this is a struggle that I himself has, has dealt with personally. Um, he lived in exile as a, as a small child because his father was a poet who was, who was exiled by the regime during the Cultural Revolution. So, you know, whether it was this photo um, or subsequent activations where he had people take put space blankets on and a fancy gala and other things that, that you know, it, it ignored this fact that he does have a, a real personal stake in, in refugee struggles. I think one thing that this photo and political art in general um, is going to face, though, in in the coming year and, and years is going beyond just kind of pointing to something. Um, you know, it's, of course, v- making something visible is, is much better than leaving it um, cast aside and the, the refugee crisis in particular is something that I think you know there's just a lot of fatigue around and people don't look at as much as maybe they should but it's how do we how do we kind of mobilize that beyond just something that you post on Facebook or write a rant about or you know get annoyed that it's uh, taking advantage of a child's tragedy and and I think that the way that artists find a way to answer that and actually say you know, whether it's, it is like doing something directly for Doctors Without Borders. Um, I think Marilyn Minter, um, having done something directly for Planned Parenthood, is a perfect example of how, you know, people can use art to benefit causes in, in very direct ways that, that are part of their practice. And I think it'd be, it'd be encouraging to see that kind of much more direct connection made, less of just a, a pointed finger in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think Eyes photograph and the original image really remind us that the very least we can do is not look away. I mean, that truly is the absolute baseline that we should all be at. And then on top of that, there are things, um, more concrete things, donating, uh, getting involved, though it's actually, I think, Syria is a, a situation where it's quite difficult for a lot of us to know what's happening, the very complicated sides. But this photograph speaks to the broader point that to look is ultimately what we should all be doing all the time, not looking away. Twenty sixteen was a banner year for museum expansions. In June, the Tate Modern's two hundred sixty million pound expansion opened its doors to the public, more than doubling the museum's exhibition space. Across the pond, the Met Breuer hosted its inaugural show and the National Museum of African American History and Culture broke new ground as the first national museum dedicated to telling the story of black Americans in this country. As art museums continue to grow, their role in crafting a more inclusive narrative around our history and our contemporary society will only become more important. So Alex, uh, looking at this landscape of institutional expansion, what does it really mean for museums and for museum goers. And it's hard to argue that major wonderful institutions like the Tate or the Met growing their capacity to show culture in these cities isn't a positive thing. Um, But there is another side to the debate that I think gets brought up within the museum community and the art world, um, which is essentially that, you know, it's a lot easier to raise money as an institution um, for a building or a new wing or what have you 
um, that someone can slap their name on with a fancy brass sign than it is to raise money for operating expenses. I mean, the Met itself is a good example. You wrote um, smartly about this earlier this year, um, about the deficit they face in their operating funds, yet they're growing at what what some would say is a pretty rapid rate in their kind of physical infrastructure. So, you know, to the extent that you're going to change how patrons of the arts are giving money, I think that's that's an uphill battle. Um, But it does warrant some consideration that, um, you know, this grow or die phenomenon that we see um, across the economy oftentimes um, also does have its implications in the institutional landscape. And while, you know, I don't think anybody uh, would foresee the uh, Tate or the Met expanding beyond what they could support, um, the question is, is are they going to have to continue to expand in order to support the infrastructure that they already have? And, you know, beyond that, could they be expanding in a way that was more diffuse and allowed access um, to a wider swath of the population outside of perhaps, you know, major urban centers? Yeah, Alex, I think that's a really good point. I would say thinking in expansion as a just physical way in a physical building or expansion of ideas into other initiatives that that take one outside of these major cities where, you know, a lot of money is being put into um, kind of really beautiful expansions, um, but a little bit of a sort of this shiny object situation where, you know, we're just going to have a new shiny object, but what about the real infrastructure and investing in that infrastructure and the operations that those institutions need to just sustain the programming that they that they have and, and further programming for, you know, the access of a lot of people. And then as, as to your point, Alex, about diffusing that outside of just the major cities, I think, you know, the Tate has done that to some degree in uh, the Northwest and England and St. Ives. And, um, you know, those are buildings again, but are there ways to um, create this expansion as programs or initiatives? I mean, I think the new museum is one example where they've created these initiatives. Um, they're, of course, also building a new building, but, you know, creating initiatives um, that are reaching outside of just New York City, whether even abroad, in, you know, in their in their idea city as well, um, to other cities within this country, uh, you know, thinking about expansion outside of just the physical nature is, is a question there too, and how we explore that. Well, actually, one cool bit of history that I've been waiting to force people to listen to is that um, in, in New York City, the borough museums, with the exception of the Brooklyn Museum, were actually started by the Met, loaning its collection to spaces in these outer boroughs as part of a broader plan to kind of get approval for the Met's own expansion. So, you know, in New York City, you even thinking, you know, we're talking about like expanding into different cities, but also within the history of institutions here, you see um, one of one of expansion and, and growth. And you could say the same thing about PS1. I mean, Long Island City was not a very um, well-trafficked uh, area or, <laughs> you know, at least not for the cultural realm. Right. And PS1 really made a concerted effort to bring, you know, space was part of it, but to bring their collection into Queens and, and I think has served that community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, I agree. That's a good point. Well, I mean, I think that in, in, in turn also speaks to the fact that you know, as I think we'll talk about in a little bit, the the way that culture can kind of transform neighborhoods and spaces and cities around the globe. Um, But I guess the other question, I mean, PS1 is a perfect example of this expanding kind of to offer greater opportunities for artists. Um, You know, even acquisition budgets right now are pretty constrained. And, 
you know, there's about nothing better you can do for an artist's career than have them be acquired by a major institution. So again, like how do we, you know, how do institutions confront that and find ways and means to, um, to expand those budgets as they're, as they're actually thinking about their physical space. And and I think that that's a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem because, Mm -hmm. um, greater audiences require more work, require more space, et cetera. But, um, you know, that, uh, like a holistic picture that also puts artists really in the foreground. I think yeah. is, is an and important to the thing detriment to of what else? I mean, Cooper Union, uh, unfortunately, you know, there's a, a, a obviously a very controversial topic. And but that's, a, you know, a good example of, you know, whether you're expanding to the detriment of, of the people you're supposed to be serving. Um, and in that case, the students and of right, when you feel the pressure to, you know, as, as Alex sort of said, you know, build expand or or die sometimes you accidentally are digging your own very shiny very glass grave for for your institution obviously that's not happening um for the met or any of these museums we're talking about but but yeah generally um big big building projects are are a source of financial risk for for any institution it seems that a lot of large-scale museums are trying to get around that by expanding in different ways through programming, by looking at their collections, rethinking their exhibition strategies. Um, One museum in particular that seems to have a great plan for this right now is the Brooklyn Museum, um, newly helmed by Ann Pasternak, used to be a creative time. And she and her team are really interested in reimagining their programming to engage with new audiences, whether they be the audiences right outside of the Brooklyn Museum itself, who historically haven't had a lot of engagement with the museum or expanding how their collections are displayed to surface underknown and underrecognized artists and practices like art by ethnic minorities and also by women. In particular, this year, their Sackler Center, which is focused on um, work made by women in particular, has opened this really exciting exhibition program called The Year of Yes, Reimagining Feminism at the Brooklyn Museum, where they're really focused on surfacing different shows that explore these topics. And it will be really interesting to see where this strategy takes the Brooklyn Museum in 2017 and if it can become a model for other museums moving forward. Artist Dred Scott made waves this July when he hoisted a flag reading, a man was lynched by police yesterday outside Jack Shaman Gallery in Chelsea. It was an update of the flag that flew outside the headquarters of the NAACP from 1920 to 1938. A critical Fox News article on Scott's flag prompted death threats against the artist and the gallery's landlord and forced the work to be taken inside days later. So how does this speak to art's ability to respond quickly to current events? Well, I I think this is a really interesting example because the this flag was hanging on the facade of a gallery in Chelsea, which is a glitzy area known for the transference of, of a lot of money. And it's rare for an art gallery to take that kind of risk to put a political message, uh, a very polarizing political message on the facade of their space. So it was, I think, for a lot of people, a very exciting moment for the contemporary arts community 
that a, a commercial space was taking this risk. Yeah, no, Alexa, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, there was a lot of focus around Dred Scott, and of course this was his work, but I think the gallery did take a lot of chances there, and, and it shows just the gallery's uh, support of the artists as well, and many of their artists. I mean, to give some background on Jack Shaman Gallery, while they, their program is is pretty wide in scope, they have been uh, been representing and supporting African-American artists as a large part of their program and their roster. And uh, artists such as Carrie James Marshall and Radcliffe ba- Bailey, Carrie Mae Weems, I mean, they have a, a their roster has a lot of black artists. And of course, this is an issue that's important outside of the black community, but particularly with Jack Shaman to support his artists and, and place this political statement outside of his gallery, I think is, is one where, he, you know, he's supporting his artists and and their community and our community as a whole uh, in this issue. The unfortunate part about this is that um, he was forced to take the the flag down. Yeah, and I think contextualizing this work is is important. As as a, a reader brought to our attention, you know, other artists have been engaging, obviously, with issues of um, police brutality, but also with this specific NAACP flag as well. Terry Adkins uh, used the flag um, as part of a performance and also hung it outside of a gallery, you know, several, several years ago, um, though his was the exact NAACP flag wall. Uh, Scott added the words uh, lynched by police. He added that. But it's interesting to see how, you know, artists like Scott and, um, Jack Shaman are responding very quickly to um, the protests that were occurring in the country at that time, but also drawing on a long uh, conceptual history of African-American artists dealing with with the subject of police violence and police brutality. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been interesting to see throughout the year, and particularly in the latter part of the year, um, artists taking a really you know strong political stance. So at Art Basel, you had artists like Rukert Tirvanesia and Sam Durant responding um, in some ways directly to the election or or remounting works that um, they had previously created. In the case of Sam Durant, um, they had a work called End White Supremacy um, quite prominently to to respond to these events. And it all comes at a time, you know, as we were discussing earlier with the Ai Weiwei photo, um, at which art does, you know, regardless of its ability to maybe change things, it is getting a lot more attention um, so whether it was Ai Weiwei getting written about in almost you know every major mainstream news outlet, or um, in the case of Dred Scott, the flag getting so much coverage on Fox News and the conservative media, and drawing this huge movement against it, um, you know sometimes movement against things are as um, as notable as as movements for things. Um, really does show you the impact that art is having, reaching out into the community. It does come with um, a kind of coda or caveat of warning, though in the way that the flag was taken down. Um, it wasn't that, you know, by any means, Jack Shaman decided that it was too dangerous for him to have the flag outside. In fact, it was um, a move by his landlord um, to pull up a, a fairly buried clause in the contract which barred him from attaching things to the outside of the gallery. Um, now, I don't, I don't know the specifics about their relationship in the past, but oftentimes um, censorship occurs through these kind of covert means or or ways that you know if it was a a non-confrontational object hanging outside of a gallery like might often happen other times one one might surmise that they wouldn't have have forced them to take it or even have known about it because i think what brought it to their attention was the controversy exactly and so i think that you know in in times when there are 
you know, particularly greater efforts to impede on freedom of speech and freedom of expression, um, you have to keep a keen eye out for people using um, seemingly innocuous uh, fine print to change message and change what we see in our spaces in our world. This summer also saw a milestone in the protection of cultural heritage. In August, a member of a group affiliated with Al-Qaeda stood before the Hague's International Criminal Court and pled guilty to charges that he organized and oversaw the destruction of holy sites in Timbuktu. This marked the first ever case in which such destruction was prosecuted as a war crime. But as ISIS's recapture of Palmyra this month demonstrates, the fight to save our shared heritage isn't over yet. I think one thing that some people may wonder as they read about this case is why is destroying heritage a war crime? These are just buildings, you know, they're not lives. Why would we elevate it to the status of war crime? Well, I think if you look back at history, um, when I was based in Germany, I was covering um, Nazi looted art and Holocaust restitutions uh, quite frequently. And what would consistently come up in those conversations is that, you know, on the one hand, yes, the, the murder of of thousands or hundreds of thousands of millions of people is is terrible, but what actually happens in these instances is also an effort to wipe out any traces of that civilization. You know, the killing off of the entire culture leaves no trace that they ever existed and allows you to reshape society in a way that you wouldn't if, um, you know, in the case of Germany, Jewish culture remained in some physical form. In the case of ISIS's activities, um, you know, things that testified to this kind of pre-caliphate era. Um, and in the case of Timbuktu, um, you know, when this was taking place, um, you know, there were people who were specifically trafficking um, documents from these libraries and other holy sites throughout um, that city to try to protect this, this shred of evidence that, you know, we were here at some point. And um, there's a really particularly heartwarming story of a guy who, who was trying to do that, like at the risk of his own life, because preserving that trace of existence um, was worth it. Right. And it's also important to note, as in, you know, Mali uh, during the, the 2012 civil war that happened there and as during the Holocaust um, and in the Middle East, you know, there is a correlation between the attacks on cultural heritage and the attacks on life. So I think part of the rationale here would be to dissuade both, particularly by using this particular case in front of the ICC as a deterrent um, towards future groups. I mean, it remains to be seen how effective it is. You know, obviously there's some incredibly heartbreaking news coming out of Aleppo right now. But across the Middle East, Mosul, and across the world, there, there's an incredible amount of war and violence, and, and human lives and culture are always going to be a threat, so long as that's the case, I think. Um, but I think a, a lot of cultural heritage advocates were really um, happy to see uh, this this elevation of, of the destruction of cultural heritage to a war crime, and, and hopeful that it can serve as at least some deterrent in the future towards acts like this. I think because culture is also something we all share, right? And I think anybody in a Western society can imagine um, what it would be like to see the Mona Lisa slashed or David toppled over and split in half. 
Um, these are things that kind of tie us together as humans. And, and I think likewise, when especially when these things get abstracted away from, you know, phenomenal, in the worst sense, numbers of individuals um, losing their lives or being displaced, that can feel very unreal, um, focusing in on these um, these objects and the and the way that it tells who we are and where we've come from um, is really powerful in, in uniting humanity around around an issue. I mean, even looking at a city like New York uh, and the value we place on certain landmarks, um, understanding that those landmarks trace us, trace back our history and give us a sense of our history, even though in this country, of course, it's much sh- more shallow than um, in the locations that we're talking about. But Th- that is that's critical in our future and how we're reading the past so so to say you know you take a, a monument or a cultural landmark like the statue of liberty and you know what if that were destroyed that not only represents sort of traces back in a physical form but um in a in a cultural view a um a sense of unity and culture a representation of a particular place it's you know that that's way beyond just like losing a f- way beyond losing a physical uh, object or a physical uh, building or presence. So it's deeply layered. And if you've, even if you go, you know, from, a, from an abstract notion of destruction to look at exactly what has been lost, um, you know, in, in particular in Timbuktu, um, and there are many, many examples across uh, the territories that ISIS now occupies. But in Timbuktu, some of these manuscripts were the foundational writings for you know, some of the earliest things that now, like whether it's algebra and mathematics or um, early religious teachings and so forth that have gone on to really define all societies throughout the entire world, to see those fundamental building blocks of the, you know, wealth in the West or ancient heritage in tribal regions across the world be destroyed um, you do get this sense of this oneness of humanity and interconnectedness of of all of our cultures. And I also think it's important to remember, you know, I think as as sort of a, a rhetoric evolves about cultural superiority in the West, whether explicit or implicit, it's important to remember that a lot of the things, you know, from like algebra that we sort of, of think of as ours for whatever reason, or some people think of as, as ours, uh, have a rich history from across the whole world, from Asia to the Middle East, um, to Africa, to South America. So safeguarding these things is, is crucial so that, that people can continue to broaden their understanding of our shared history. For many, this year has ended on a note of uncertainty. It's too soon to see how the reverberations from Brexit in June and the U.S. presidential election in November will change both the political and social landscape. But in 2016, art proved itself ever more integral as a conduit for pioneering new thought in ways big and small, social and economic. So the question I want to put to you three is what are some specific examples of of this? A really exciting effort that was recently announced is um, an unprecedented partnership between the UN and a commercial arts um, organization, Design Miami, which is a commercial design fair. And they have basically partnered to bring political leaders and thought leaders the world over 
together with designers who have really ambitious ideas around how we can make this world a, a more sustainable green place. So together, they'll be talking through a lot of issues, whether it be issues in kind of sustainable urban planning um, or responsible production of the objects that we use in our daily lives. Only one of these talks has happened as of yet, so we're not sure what effects these talks will have on the world, but it's um, it's a really interesting effort to, and an exciting, I think, effort to see political leaders putting um, an emphasis on the inspired thinking of designers and artists. Right. One thing that I, I actually remember reading about was how the UN talked about how this design community wasn't one that was necessarily reached by its normal messaging, by the normal channels of distribution and communication, even though, obviously, design will play an important role in creating more sustainable everything. So it's a recognition that at tapping into this kind of arts community very directly will hopefully make a difference um, in in tangible, intangible, meaningful ways. Yeah, I mean, another great example is Olaf Eliasson, who this year has had a big year, uh, won an exhibition at Versailles and also his Greenlight Artistic Workshop. Um, But there's an example of an artist who's always engaged with nature and now has taken it to a broader conversation of sustainability and, uh, you know, has really been able to generate dialogue outside of just the art world And, and also use this sort of both the approach he takes to his work and, you know, in a lot of ways, his works tend to be very accessible to a broader audience and beautiful and moving. Um, but say, okay, how do I take the power of that audience and then apply it to an issue that, um, that I feel that he feels very strongly about? Um, this is an example of how artists are making work that's, uh, creating a dialogue in a, in a broader, in a broader sense. And, and the world looking to artists to to start that conversation. And I think if you you scan throughout the year um, from things as as far outside the art world as you know New Hampshire instituting a new standardized test that's that's looking at students' creative capacity because they're seeing that um, ever more frequently the world's leading companies are are needing creative output and creative thinkers, um, be they artists or or other kinds of creatives, um, to solve major problems. Um, if you look at an initiative like Art Basel Cities, uh, which is announced in March and it's going to start with Buenos Aires and use the kind of acumen and cultural programming that they've developed um, in the three fairs they run around the world to help urban redevelopment and rebranding initiatives. There are countless other initiatives across the globe at the moment that's uh, um, really looking at how that outside-the-box thinking that artists do, that people um, in creative professions more broadly do, is exactly the kind of stuff that we need to be empowering to solve um, these very big problems and, and solve kind of rising tides of, of you know, rear-footedness. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to also, especially with something uh, like climate change, which is so global, to kind of put an asterisk next to some of these things in the same way we we did with Ai Weiwei's photograph. And, and just remember that I, I think it's important to be honest and self-critical about exactly what can be achieved with some of these endeavors and, and what will, just in the same way we talked about um, how looking is the very least we can do. You know, surely th- thinking about climate change is, is the least we can do. And, and that's 
kind of why I liked the New Museum's Idea City Initiative, which I attended, because that self-criticality, which I feel like so often um, as someone who writes about these things, you have to muster yourself and bring into the conversation. That self-criticality was built into that project where um, a bunch of uh, people from across the country, across the world, and Detroit sort of thought about uh, what the city is, the narratives around it, and, and actively fractured those while also coming up with ideas for, for more concrete plans. But I do think that one of one of the interesting things that, in the ways that artists can apply their skills is, um, you know, for example, in the alternative energy community, there's a really interesting conversation going on right now about how, you know, new branding opportunities are available to um, make people want to pay for alternative energy, regardless of what um, energy policy might look like in the future? How can artists play a role in, you know, being supreme visual communicators in helping those things um, stay afloat? Because fundamentally, a lot of the kind of progressive things that take place are more costly. Um, Look at the organic food movement, for example. Now, that happened in a very different time. Um, But the extent to which artists can use their, their abilities and creativity is more um, valued across society can allow, you know, things in the private sector even to um, reach audiences that they might not otherwise just based on their kind of pure merit. Yeah, and they also encourage people to think, um, you know, as you said, outside the box and think uh, in a creative way when you're how to work with parameters and get the most out of um, sort of sometimes limited parameters, you know, whether it's the the future of a city, the state of our environment, um, and other big issues, I think artists have a tendency in a be- in a wonderful way to sort of take you outside of those that structure and have you think a little bit without being cliche, but to think creatively, to think um, in an expansive, um, creative way. Personally, I you know in this time we're on the precipice of a brand new year. Uh, we're in a state of uncertainty and. And, you know, a lot of divisiveness, I I would say that, you know, I go back to our piece and, and the headline that we use for the last moment, which is artists forge the future. Um, and, you know, to quote, quote the piece, I, you know, we don't know what challenges and opportunities 2017 will bring, but we do know that art is better positioned than ever to help generate dialogue and solutions. Thanks for listening to 2016's final edition of the Artsy Podcast. We'll be taking two weeks off for the holidays, but we will be back in January with another special episode. This one, looking forward to 2017 with a list of New Year's resolutions tailored for the art world. In the meantime, consider taking a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We love hearing from you listeners. See you next year. This week's episode was the product of a Herculean production effort from editorial associate Abigail Kane. Great year of production from her. The theme music is by Broke for Free. Broke for Free.